University of Virginia AVP Cindy Frederick has been building community since she was seven years old. From leading small nonprofits to engaging a 200,000 person global alumni population, I hope you enjoy learning why Cindy feels so strongly that money follows compelling experiences. Here we go. Greetings, Ray's community. I am so excited that on June 30th, 2020, Advancement New Year's Eve, I am hosting Cindy Frederick, the AVP of, U of UVA alumni, parents, and friends, joining us from Charlottesville. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what, what do we call June 30th in the advancement world? Are there any uh, memorable celebrations or traditions like when uh, the dust really settles in the shop that you've been a part of over your career? Yeah. <laughs> well, usually when we're all together, we do pop a few corks. Um, we have a huge celebration to, to uh, end the fiscal year, both from a giving and an engagement, and we start the clock again. So we kind of have two uh, New Year's Eve celebrations, one in January and one in June, and, and or July to begin. Um, so yeah. We usually get together and celebrate. We, we like to celebrate our accomplishments along the way, but this is a big hallmark. Well, like you, we are all trying to adjust to these moments. June 30th is uh, a big uh, inflection point forever true as well. And so we're all trying to get better at how to engage our fellow colleagues and our communities in this virtual environment. And so uh, we, I, I have no doubt, will learn from you and all of the pivoting and changes that UVA has gone through over the last six months. We first connected uh, most recently during our COVID series, and that really led to uh, us wanting to do a follow-up show that was um, a little bit more about you and your uh, trajectory. And I, I think on that note, I would just love to kind of get your perspective on um, where this all started, where your journey started, who you are, and uh, what led you down this advancement path. Sure, sure. I think, you know, my, for my advancement, um, I didn't even know what it was called advancement when my journey began, but I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and very involved in the community as a volunteer. Uh, my first job was as a tour guide in our local museum. I started that job when I was 12 years old, um, giving tours um, to our local museum. And uh, so for me, advancement was more of uh, it wasn't even development. It was how do we take care of each other? How do we take care of the community? And how do we give back? And so that has been a part of my DNA from my parents, my grandparents, is that we have a responsibility to give back. And so that's where my journey really began is how do we care for what? one another? What yep. town in Wisconsin did you grow up in? And what was the museum called? It was called Melton House Museum. Uh, built in 1844 by Joseph Goodrich, um, one of the first cement buildings in the United States, uh, a home of the Underground Railroad. Oh, I've got it, you know? So that's where I grew up. Uh, I went to school in Iowa, um, and that was a transformational experience for me. Again, continued building community. I went on a Pell Grant, um, which I didn't even know what a Pell Grant, I thought it was just a great scholarship, but very blessed. Uh, worked my way through college as a nursing assistant, as a tutor, but very involved in student activities, raising money, getting volunteers, looking for a cause, and making it happen. 
And so that has been, I think, the theme throughout all my uh, journey and jobs. I started out as a social worker. Um, that was my major. So I worked in long-term care and then decided I really liked the, the community building and I decided to get my master's in education and um, worked again for a nonprofit small theater company. It was an equity theater company started by Tim Busfield and, and got my chops on how to, how to run a nonprofit. I was their managing director, did fundraising, board development, volunteer management, grant writing, small office. It was myself in the office and then a field of actors. Uh, moved to Virginia with my husband, who um, came here to go to the University of Virginia, and uh, worked for an advocacy group here in town, a statewide um, sexual assault crisis agency. Again, focusing on the education and volunteer management, but also on the grant writing. Spent a lot of time with our centers throughout the state, helping them develop marketing campaigns, annual giving campaigns. And um, when I was at that job, um, I managed all the interns. And one of the questions that the interns always say is, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, you know, I love what I do. But if I had my dream job, it would be working full time with college students, but still in the field of community service. And so that job led to a position at the university running our volunteer service center. So I was president and executive director of Madison House, the student volunteer service center. And in that role, I did all the fundraising, all the volunteer management, the training, the board development, and did that for 14 years. And that was just an amazing, amazing job. And at the, I would say about the seven year mark, um, I worked more with our alumni and started an alumni council and started our alumni giving program and our engagement program. And what I saw was that a lot of alumni were calling back into me and say, hey, I've moved to a new city and I can't connect with anyone. They had this really nice connection at the University of Virginia and they moved to San Francisco or Boston or Tampa Bay and their network went away. We didn't not a lot of internet, um, and they were kind of lost. And so what I would do is I would just go through my Rolodex and find somebody. And in 19, well, in 2004, the University of Virginia started thinking about how could we engage our alumni, um, parents and friends in a new way and created a brand new office, um, the Office of Engagement. And um, I was recruited to build this office um, as a way of how could we develop systematically ways to make greater connections where our alumni and parents and friends lived. So each one of those jobs kind of provided me skills to set up for the next one. Um, but the theme along the whole way is, uh, has been alumni. Um, back when I was in Milton, I was very active in our 4-H um, program. And that was run by alums of that program. So alumni relations, volunteer management, and annual giving, I've been doing for decades. I love it. I love it. As a fellow uh, 4-H club member, uh, I, uh, I totally respect the uh, tradition and, uh, and, and honestly, great way to build leadership skills early on. I, I have to ask, I mean, it sounds like for you, though, uh, getting access to college in the first place, um, you went to Luther College, which coincidentally is about nine miles from where I grew up, um, right in the... Uh, on the edge of Winnesheet County in Iowa. And so I am curious, uh, as you kind of made that transition, when you think about those early formative years and experiences in college, what stands out? Because obviously something clicked for you to um, really invest your life in, in, in the field uh, of advancement, even before you knew it was called that. 
Yeah, I think a couple of things. It's your members and your people that I was surrounded by who believed in me, um, who uh, let me think about things in new ways, um, fast fail. So one of the tenets of Luther is to develop student leadership. And I think, you know, Trish Neubauer was the director of student activities, and I still am with her all the time. You know, I'm connected with her. But I think what the transformation there was that she believed in me. Um, she didn't tell me the roadmap of what to do, but she was there listening and allowed me to develop new ideas, um, to try things. And just that um, belief in others, I think, um, help me develop those skills to move forward. So that's, you know, it's people, it's those one-on-one -on -one interactions uh, that you really don't know where they'll lead, but um, they are very powerful. And so that, that connection and the power of coming together um, changed my life. And so I'm, I'm very pleased that I can provide that same kind of opportunity for thousands of people just by creating a space for people to come together um, to improve their own lives, but to improve also others. I love it. And um, are you still in touch with, with friends from Luther? I mean, there's not probably a lot of people in the Charlottesville area who are our fellow uh, Norse from Luther, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Well, the crazy thing is I came to um, advancement and my first meeting and I was, you know, I came from a very small operation. We only had four people or staff members, um, you know, coming from the volunteer service center and everyone's like, oh man, you're coming to the big advancement, you know, uh, shop of 200 people. Uh, you know, it's going to be totally different than working for a small nonprofit. Madison House was part of the university, but an in, independent nonprofit. My very first meeting, the chief of staff for our president and the AVP for administration is what? She's a Luther grad. And so in this meeting, so my credibility went up really high just because we had that Norse connection. Amazing. Um, but I, no, I stay connected. I think it's really important. Um, so I've been um, connected and going back to reunions, serving as a volunteer, connecting with faculty members and friends who um, are really lifelong friends. I love it. So uh, I hope you took a selfie in that meeting and sent it to the alumni magazine because that sounds like pretty good, uh, pretty good content. Um, exactly. You know, so you're in this role, uh, really kind of at the intersection of engagement and giving, and oftentimes, um, uh, you know, not oftentimes, there are real silos at almost any institution in those different areas. And I'm just curious about the origins yeah. of of why that yeah. role was created lessons learned along the way and if there are other institutions out there trying to think about how do we sort of create more of a bridge at that intersection any lessons learned yeah i think um one of the things that attracted me to advancement um and i think uh them to me was that this siloed uh of alumni relations and development and advancement in higher education was not what I was experiencing for two decades before in the nonprofit world, right? And so in the nonprofit community-based organization, engagement, volunteerism, 
and giving are all intertwined. There's not number one, because they're small shops, but number two, I think people um, don't think as constituents, if you love an organization, you don't think about giving and involvement in two different ways. It's all kind of combined. I never saw them as two separate things. So when I came to alumni relations in higher education, I came from 20 years of, of course, you have good working relationships. Of course, you have giving and you have giving in all forms. Philanthropy, in my mind, is not just dollars. Philanthropy is time. It's um, promoting. It's advocacy. It's um, dollars, even if it's you know $25. And so I, I looked at philanthropy as all-inclusive, not separate, right? So... I came from that. I had great working relationships, you know, with major giving officers and nonprofits. I had great relationships on how they all kind of work together. So number one, I came with a philosophy of, I don't know why you guys are making this so hard and why we have so many different silos, because if we can bring together not only development, but we had silos in student affairs, in athletics, um, in career services, everyone kind of was so afraid that their mission, um, their turf. And so I just came with, you know, if we work together, many hands do light work, as my, my mom used to say, is that if we all come together with the expertise and our subject matter expert coming towards a common goal, it's a win-win. And so that's how I approached it from the very beginning is saying, we have one common goal. How do we keep alumni, parents, and friends engaged. And even engaging parents was something that in the advancement field was brand new. And that's a, that, that's a different story, but that was, that was a big one too. And so I think um, uh, slowly over time, uh, I think uh, people saw the benefit of, of how we can think about, especially alumni relations um, as a wholeness, the whole person, not one side of giving and one side engagement. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I really think about the idea of the alumni life cycle and how can we be most relevant to a given constituent based on where they are in their lives. And in doing that, how can we earn their gift? And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I was just interviewing uh, a woman today in the DC area uh, and she went to Howard University. And I love asking people in, in interviews, you know, what's your experience been like um, with your own alma mater? And I will say, though, it's, it's kind of sad at times uh, when, when, when you hear the quick bullet point. She said, well, they send me a quarterly magazine. Once in a while, I get hit up by a student being asked for money. They'll randomly email me in a manner that has nothing to do with the other things that, you know, that, that I actually do care about. Um, and then she did say, but they're doing a better job engaging people on social media. But uh, it, it, and by the way, this is a woman who right now is in the middle of a career search. And so it's like, how can her institution at this moment be there for her, not asking for money, but actually asking how we might be able to help. And in doing that, uh, ensuring that when the, the ask is made, it's much more of a two way sort of experience. And it, it does sound so easy, but that is just not the experience that most alumni are having today. And obviously, you know, nobody's perfect and you're not going to be able to deliver that sort of, um, uh, you know, perfect experience every single time. But it does sound like you're aligned in what you've been trying to establish at UVA in a large, uh, passionate 
but but still somewhat siloed um, context. Well, well, absolutely. I think 15 years ago, if I asked the alumni at that point, you know, most of the messaging, most of the things were related to, you know, giving. And it wasn't how do we connect with you? How do we create this place that you can continue to belong and reap all those benefits? And it could be jobs. It could be career advice. It could be just celebrating this transformative time in your life. And we've changed that, you know, 15 years ago, the giving asks were much, much higher. And now uh, the opportunities for a connection and a place to belong um, is huge. And I think that was the big thing. When I started the office and was talking to alumni and parents, the biggest thing people would say is, I don't belong. So I would go to an event and say, well, I'm not really a big donor. And people would be apologizing. Um, they'd come to an event or parents would say, well, I don't really belong here because I'm not an alum. So we did some, you know, we changed our alumni clubs very successful, but we got rid of the alumni name because our UVA clubs were one family. We're alumni, parents and friends. And if you love the university, welcome, come on in. And by opening that up in an inclusive way, then parents could help young alumni find jobs by networking informally. Um, people could celebrate, we could just expand the network. Again, how do you open up a community? Because people want a place to belong either in person, which is where we had been, but also virtually people want a sense of belonging and your alma mater or your church or your kids organizations. We have a lot of choices where we can belong, but I think your alma mater, because you had that such a transformational time in your life, can be one of those homes that people come to where they can seek comfort, they can seek advice, they can um, have transformational experiences continuing on. And that's what I live for is those transformational experiences that I see in alumni or parents based from their experience with the University of Virginia, even if they graduated 30, 40, 50 years ago. So when you look back on the last a uh, few years, let's just say pre-COVID, and you had a lot of that feedback early on of people saying, I'm not sure I belong here, open it up. Uh, any memorable experiences where you started to feel like, hey, it's working, we're making progress, like the, the, the tenor is changing in those conversations? Yeah, I think um, going back to what you said earlier is, what can we do for you? What's some meaningful content? Um, and so it's not just creating a space for people to belong, but it's that safe space for people to be vulnerable, to um, to ask for help, to kind of say, gosh, you know, this is my family and I need help. So memorable, you know, thinking back to another crisis time in our life in 2008, right? We had a huge financial crisis and we had an event with one. We do a lot with faculty. Our faculty at UVA, we have 150 faculty members that go out and do lectures for us. And one of our financial professors, Karen Bonding, went out on a tour doing finance after, after 2008. And there was an alum who came to his very first UVA event, architecture alum. He sat there. We got to the Q&A, and he was distraught. He said, I need some help. I've been laid off from my job. I've got two kids in college. I've remortgaged the house. I've cashed in my retirement. I'm on the verge of bankruptcy, and I want my kids to have the experience that I did. But I am, I am lost. And our faculty member said, "She said, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna figure this out. 
Can you stay afterwards? She sat with that alum for an hour after that talk. And they went through, developed the plan, figured it out. And I, you know, she gave him hope, right? So he came in to this environment first time that he's come back to the university in his 50s. But he knew that UVA was here for him. And that changed his life. There is no doubt in my mind that that one interaction changed and possibly saved his life. And so that's what energizes me yeah. about how do, we, how do we develop that so that happens time and time and again in organic ways, in grassroots right. ways. How do we set up a system yeah. that allows for that personal interaction? So that's what gets me excited. And that's totally. where I'm at. I love it. I mean, it's really inspiring. And at the same time, it makes me wonder how many people are out there who need that help, who aren't uh, taking that first step and showing up and being willing to ask for it. Uh, And then obviously you can offer it. There's got to be follow through. And I feel like one of the biggest opportunities at the intersection of engagement and giving right now is how do we start to scale proactive outreach to facilitate the type of conversations that, that, you know, you were referencing that that gentleman had that evening that had a transformative impact on his life. How many people are out there right now seeking work who don't even realize how UVA might be able to help them? And, And how do we start really trying to not just wait for them to show up, but also go to them. And I know you all have been thinking through front. Yeah, and I think part of that is a willingness from administrators and staff to take risks and to give up control. So I think how do you scale that up is that you've got to train the trainer, you've got to develop allies that have that commitment through your volunteer network if I can only do it from a faculty member, even though we have a lot of faculty that go out, right? We do a lot of events. I do between 1,000 and 1,300 events a year. Now, that's not that's a lot. I mean, that's huge, right? But that's only still a very small. We have 240,000 alumni, an additional parent set, right? For 200,000. So how do we train and create grassroots communities and that are UVA, where we provide tools for volunteer leaders to be able to create that space so that people can either find that or just through informal networking, uh, be able to do it. So how we're trying to do it is how do we create a system that ease the burden of complexity for our regional volunteer networks to be able to replicate that without staff involvement? That way we can just we can expand so greatly that we've got to, you've got to have, you know, uh, an attitude of our volunteers and our staff, you know, volunteers are, are like our professional staff. We give up some control and we're okay. And then we develop systems and best practices that can train the trainer approach. Again, that goes back to my nonprofit world. In the nonprofit world, we didn't have a lot of staff. And goes back to 4-H, right? You develop pockets and you keep training and you have mentorship and you have succession planning and you have all these circles, but the university gives up some control. And that's what we try and do here. And I think one of the, the things I've really come to respect about 
you and your team at UVA across grounds is just the focus on tracking, uh, the focus oh, yeah. on creating a great experience, but not just relying on the anecdotal feedback, you know, hey, I loved it or it was great, but really trying to instrument and track things at a way that not only help you understand the health of your engagement organization, but also can then really become a source of intelligence for prospect development, for major gifts, for annual giving, so that you are, when it is time to make the ask, you're mapping those resources against the most engaged, most likely to respond constituents. And so uh, I'm curious, one, like during your journey um, professionally, when you started seeing the importance of metrics and, and engagement tracking as a form of alumni intelligence really start to emerge. And then if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your pivot to virtual and how that's actually allowed you to scale up uh, not only the events that you're having, reduce budget, but also um, engage new pockets of people who frankly have not been able to uh, participate in some of the offline activities that we've relied on historically. So journey around events and tracking and metrics uh, and what the experience has been around virtual. Yeah, so I think um, for me, coming from the nonprofit world and outcome measurements that we had, we've, I've been tracking forever. So one of the first things that I did when I came in to start this new office, we didn't have anyone in, um, in data analytics. I didn't have anyone to help me think through that. And people are like, well, all we need to do is track how many people and how many events. And we want events to be our driver. And I said, it doesn't matter how many events you did. If you don't know who the people are that went to the event, the event number one could be not very good. But if you don't know who actually went to the event, you can't have that personalized experience. And so um, it took us about a year and a half to develop, you know, and frankly, you know, some of our silos and advancement services, they said, we don't want event attendees in our development database. And I said, it's not a development database. It's a, a database about our consistent, you know, our customers and their full relationship with the university. Giving is just one piece of it. So the very beginning, it took about two years to develop the systems within our CRM to be able to track that, right? Mm -hmm. But we track everything from the very beginning because I also knew it was a brand new office. I wanted more money, more staff. I needed to show results, not tangible results. One of our results was on giving because back to what you said earlier, if you are connected and if you have good experience with an organization, you don't even have to be asked sometimes. You will want to support that, right? But it's gotta be that good experience. And so from the very beginning, we said, okay, what is our baseline for giving? So our baseline right now for alumni giving is 18%. Today, when we started 14 years ago, our people who came to events, it, ma it mirrored that about 18, you know, 18, 20%. Today, over 40% of the people that come to our events either are donors or become donors because money will follow a good experience. You know, just think about your own philanthropic giving. I asked that of our volunteers. I said, who do you give money to? I give people, I give money to organization and causes that I believe in, that have helped me, that I want to propel forward. And whatever that passion is, whether it's research, whether it's education, whether it's social, whether it's your church or whatever. So what is about the University of Virginia that you can tap into that um, passion and what that is? But just that connection, money will come. 
The ask is, is the ask is just a vehicle, but you've got to do all that pre-work. So I was very fortunate to work for a progressive, um, Bob Sweeney progressive in that, that we want to engage fully. And then Mark Llewellyn continues with that. I want engagement in its fullest standpoint. I want engagement. But so my metrics, I can say, you know, right now, I can tell you who's giving, who our participants are. We have a strategy because I know that there's, you know, if you come out to an event, you've shown that you're passionate. Now we just have to find out what's going to be that spark that makes you give. Yeah. And you can't do that without data. Yeah. And, so we, we report and, and so let's talk about how you've evolved your strategies and reporting in this virtual context what you have targeted historically from offline event uh, attendees and how you've begun to scale that online in a really short amount of time. Yeah, you know, and this is, it's both a great thing and it's an exciting story, but it kind of makes me sad as well. Because <laughs> what I'm going to tell you is that, you know, I'm a believer in in, in person. The University of Virginia is a residential college. Um, my transfer, you know, I'm a, I'm a people person. I don't think, um, but I think that was a blind spot of mine. Um, and we unfortunately, or whatever, did not do a lot of virtual programming. I think we did maybe less than a dozen last fiscal year. March 19th, we shut down all um, in-person events. And we do, you know, again, we did 1300 events last year. So just in that, that's where we spent our mindset. So we positioned, we said, we have to still, we built this community and our community is the one that says, what's happening? You're canceling an event, what's next? So very quickly, we had to develop these programs virtually just because our community demanded it and we wanted to keep the momentum going. And so we created a lot of diverse programming. And what we found is, you know, just some numbers, you know, we're going to have probably 75 to 80,000 registrations this year combined with our in-person for the first till March. And then um, through the end of this year, half of those are going to be from our virtual events, which will be more than what we did all last year in in-person events. Now they're not going to replace each other, but the scale and who we were able to broaden that community to 42 countries. So all of a sudden we have all these people that are participating in our communities. We're getting better at it, but communities in a virtual space that we were not, we were being exclusive based on geographic right. based on ability to attend something. So that was a blind spot on mine. And so part of being a leader in my mind is saying, you know what? Um, yeah, we've got, you know, that was a blind spot. When you think about the events that you are now doing virtually, because there's, there's two different elements. One is how do we take things that we've done historically and try to recreate it as best we can online? And then there's the other piece, which is now that we can only do virtual, what are things we never could have done before, never would have tried before that we might attempt? certain international things, for example. We're seeing it with our RAISE conference. It's it's in late July. We've always done it in person in Boston. It has been a lot of fun, uh, really energizing for our team, for the attendees. The feedback has been really, really great. We're, it's like our homecoming. We're sad not to have it this year. But we are already at basically a 1,000 uh, attendees. We will 
far exceed that uh, at a radically lower cost. And no, it won't be quite as good as the in-person homecoming experience, but it will be accessible to people who never could have got the budget, especially right now, to come travel to Boston for a few days in the summer, expensive plane tickets and hotels. So we're seeing it too. Um, I think longer term, the question is, what is the hybrid new normal where we can regain some of that in-person connect connection, but also learn the lessons that you've learned that we're learning right now. So are there an event or two that you just are like, wow, that was a huge win. We never would have tried that if it weren't for this situation. Yeah. Well, I think a couple things um, that I think even in the virtual space, just like in the in-person event, it's really important to have a diversity and a variety of events. So, you know, the webinars are wonderful for one-way communication out. Um, but um, And so that's accessible in, in, a, in a wonderful way. But for that community building, the connection of one-on-one, um, that's hard to do in a webinar. So we're doing as many more meetings of creating breakout rooms, of how do we create the community experience in a virtual space. And so for some of those, it's just um, having real discussions, right? So um, thinking about, so your, your question on two examples. So one of the big examples that we have is even just um, uh, last night, we had our athletic director, um, Tiki Barber, Joe Harris on. And the that was a webinar, but we had great conversation and questions coming in and there was connection and people really felt part of that conversation because it was really fun, it was engaging, but it wasn't necessarily um, one-on-one. Then we go to another event with a faculty member talking about COVID-19 and the research and we have 50 people on that call and we break out into two separate rooms and we're talking about Um, what's happening in the community and these heroes and there's connections being made but we make them smaller less than 10 people in a breakout room and then coming back so you still have to think just like with an event what you know what are the logistics how do you set up the flow how do you create spaces for one-on-one connection Um, and then we have the old-fashioned telephone calling you know students calling our alums um, thanking them for gifts having deep conversations so i think for me it's that hybrid of, of diversity of events to be able what's your ultimate goal one is connecting to the community that's a one-way street but i also want that interaction that community building that's very uh, personable and tangible and so part of that is just a diversity of the platforms in this space I I love that point because when you do look at why people really value conference experiences, for example, whether it's case conferences or Evertrue's race conference, it's always about meeting other people. You know, the content can be great, but nobody ever says it was the session that made me really want to go back. It was the people, the context, getting to know people, building relationships. And so even for our race conference, We've been really saying, okay, yes, we can tell uh, good stories and we can have compelling speakers, but what people really love is the opportunity to get to know like-minded peers in this profession. How do we facilitate that online? Have you cracked that code yet or any advice? Uh, And we'll certainly share lessons we learned as well. Yeah, yeah. I think a couple of things. I think sometimes, you know, I 
big numbers, right? Numbers can't drive the quality of that experience. You know, thinking back to that gentleman on that one-on-one. -on -one. So we're doing CityLink events right now with recent 24, you know, with recent grads of 2020. And so we might have 10 people. And initially the team was like, oh, we only have 10 grads that signed up, but we have young alumni in that city. We have parents in that city. Um, and those, that conversation was phenomenal. Those 10 people, young alum, they got connections. They found out where to get an apartment. They thought about job connections. So I think we have to be careful not to be driving after these huge numbers. I love it when yeah. we can do an event a webinar for you know 2,000 people. But if you get blindsided, that 2,000 is great, but that was no less or more important than this event for 10 people in Boston where we connected 10 recent grads of the University of Virginia who are moving to Boston. That is really important. So part of it is your metric and your goals. And that is the beauty, I think, of this Zoom economy that we're living in. It would have been hard to justify physically hosting that event or facilitating that connection for those 10 people. But when you're a Zoom link away, it's so frictionless that you can start to deliver experiences like that that are, are, are not scalable, but are really high impact because they're more intimate in nature. So I, I think we're just scratching the surface and you know we're all trying to make the most of what has been a really challenging 2020. But I think these are examples where um, you know, it, it goes back to the golden rule. Like I would have loved somebody when I moved to Chicago in 2004, uh, from the university reach out and say, Hey Brent, there's nine other people who just moved to Chicago. We're going to schedule, yeah. you know, a, a, a little gathering for you. Yes, I can do that. Yes. There's a directory. Yes. There's LinkedIn. I can go and find that information, but that has so much more friction than you helping architect in orchestrating that relationship building so that when it comes time for me to decide where I'm going to give my time or talent or treasure, I can think, oh, it's a no brainer that I'm going to give it back to Brown or UVA, et cetera. And for me, like I did have one individual who went out of his way when I moved to Chicago, who said, you need to meet these other people in Chicago. And it changed my life. It literally changed my life. It would have been so easy for him to not do that. It was so easy yeah. for him to do that. And I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that that Zoom room with the 10 people who are recent grads in Boston in some way, their lives will be a little bit better because of it, and maybe in big ways, depending on how things play out over the next several decades. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that's exactly right. So I think part of it is um, being clear on what your goals are and both have these big things to bring people um, to the family so that you can be very inclusive, but um, you have to just have the variety of in-depth experiences. You just said the word inclusive, and I was thinking about you know some of our past discussions, and oftentimes we ask people, if you could wave a magic wand and just make one big change about the advancement industry, uh, what would it be? And, and, and you'd indicated that you felt like we really need to be more intentional about creating diversity within the field of advancement, and, and I'd love for you to share your perspective yeah. on that. I think uh, diversity for me is in all forms. So I think, you know, I'm not an alum of the University of Virginia. My husband is. I paid for him to go here. Um, and people always say, gosh, how, how can you be leading an alumni engagement office 
from your not alma mater. And so for me, diversity is I want people coming with a variety of experiences, alum, not alum. I, we are very heavily female in our advancement shop right now. I want males, I want young, I want old, I want racial, I want ethnic diversity, sexual orientation diversity. And um, we have been pretty much, you know, we have not had a lot of diversity in our advancement profession. And so how do we, at least in at the University of Virginia, we look at how do we intentionally not just sit back and say, who's gonna come in, but start that process very early. So thinking about even advancement as a career, if I look at our most diverse operation shop within advancement, do you know what it is? What area? It's your phonathon. Our phonathon, student callers, is the most diverse economically, ethnically, racially. And so how do we say, gosh, this group here, you could be a fundraiser. Did you know advancement was even a career? And so how do we intentionally start that conversation? How do we provide professional development to our students? How do we bring in mentors? How do we um, show that this could be a path for you, maybe not right now or later? You know, we started a, a young alumni ambassador program for young alumni who will go out and um, just thank and steward people, not asking, but just going out, tell me about your experience, getting their feet, feet wet into advancement. And we can recruit a very diverse group of folks. So we have to be intentional. Um, and, and part of that is, you know, our situation right now, um, you know, following George Floyd's murder, it gives us this spotlight that um, we have to take advantage of. And what are our practices? Have we just been sitting back and not being proactive, thinking just about alumni relations? How do you make it easy? How do you reduce the barriers? How do you start thinking about unconscious bias? How do you develop mentoring programs, training programs, professional development programs? How do you look at your hiring, where you're going? All that we have to look at. But we have to say, number one, we want a diverse workforce. We want that and it will benefit us. And so we start yeah. there and then go from there. So I, I, I think diversity in all forms is really important for any profession, um, but I think advancement um, in, you know, just think of what we have communications, we have um, community building, we have sales or giving. Um, yeah. It's just, it's such a rich career with so many different extroverts, introverts, technology, forward, front of the house, back of the house. I mean, you, if you could find a job that you can excel at in advancement. Um, and you're and so sitting, yeah, I mean, you have such, I mean, that is that is definitely one of, uh, it is rightfully so top of mind for many leaders as we wrap fiscal 2020, okay? And uh, it is top of mind for vendors and partners like ourselves. We all have to be more intentional without a doubt. I think remote work can also help create additional access to talent pools that allow you to be more intentional uh, 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 relative to markets um, like Boston, for example, which the Boston tech scene can feel somewhat homogeneous at times. And so um, I, I think that uh, there is such an opportunity, like if there's one organization in the planet that should be able to address this, it is advancement shops that are sitting in uh, the midst of these diverse 
student populations. It's vendor partners like ours who can reach out to people like you, who can hopefully route us to your partners on campus to ensure that we are being more intentional um, uh, about, uh, you know, trying to recruit a diverse talent pool. So it's great that we're having this conversation. Had we uh, spoken four months ago, this might not be the conversation we're having. And so it's it's terrible that it has come to this, but uh, I am hopeful that we can all um, really be a part of, of this change and, and hopefully what is an inflection point on the arc of uh, this journey. Right. I think you're exactly right, but I think what you said, it takes that um, priority of mind. It takes that beginner's eye. You know, I always think, you know what, you you just learn so much about yourself and say, gosh, what are my practices? What are my belief system? Have I been part, you know, what can I do here? Yeah. Um, just in not only recruiting and hiring, but, you know, the success and the promotion of um, our team members here. Um, how do we, how do we um, have these conversations? So. I think it's incredibly important. When you think about the next chapter for advancement, we've talked about diversity. We've talked about the um, lessons learned around digital. We've talked about silos. But when you think about five years from now, some of the before and after that you hope to experience, what uh, what's top of mind? I think, you know, part of that is laying this framework that we've now developed. But again, how do we scale that in a way um, that reaches the masses without losing that intimacy of the conversation? So, you know, the peer-to-peer giving ask, you know, how do we, um, you know, that's been happening forever, but sometimes we lose sight of that peer-to-peer ask. Um, we still have that professional ask, which is so incredibly important, but how do we scale what we're doing um, in a way that will have transformation? I think, um, you know, I that connection to our academic um, aspect of the house, right? That has to be strengthened so that we can share these stories, um, so that we have the research, we can have, you know, what is it about education that will inspire someone to be part of the advancement world? You know, it's not, it has to be more than just, gosh, I had a great experience at my alma mater. I want to make it, I want to make sure um, someone else can do, have that experience. So that, that, that's all it takes for me. I mean, I, Luther College was, transformational. I would not be. And so I've been making an annual gift to Luther since I left, right? So just out of that course of loyalty, um, out of giving back, but we got to do more than that. Because if we're just relying on that, it's got to be, what are we doing right now to change the world? So what is UVA doing in the area of diversity or education or research that's going to change the world? So how do we have tighter connections to our academic um uh, partners and faculty so that we can share that out um, with our alums so that they can be part of that transformational journey. So I think um, for me, the future of advancement is it's not just the institution and then this outer bubble of alumni and parents that are out here. It's one UVA family a little bit more tighter. That's where I think we got to bring them in. Um, an example of that, you know, when we first started, someone said, well, you know, what's going on in the University of Virginia, we have this bubble and it's student, it's faculty and it's staff, and we'll get to the alumni because they're on the outside bubble. We'll get to them down the road. No, they got to be in the inside bubble from the very beginning. And so how do we even communicate 
from the get-go. So, you know, when we went virtual on May on March 19th, the first meeting that we set up was with all of our volunteers to bring them in, to let them know what the university was doing. It wasn't two weeks down the way. They weren't the secondary bubble. So for me, the future is continuing. How do we, how do we bring our uh, constituents and that uh, alumni parents into that inner bubble um, connected to our transformational goals of the institution um, that's changing the world, whether research or education? Yeah, well, look, I think uh, the alumni connectivity at UVA has been a tremendous source of, of access and opportunity professionally not to mention uh, all of the social experiences and then certainly philanthropically. And you've set uh, such a high standard uh, for so many others to aspire to, uh, uh, to learn from. And, and you know, I, I think that uh, being able to do that um, in such a decentralized context with so much tradition and history is hard. And so it's not like, oh, it's UVA, they all love each other, they love the school, it's easy. It's, it's still really, really complicated. Um, I think, to, to execute the kinds of plans uh, and change that you've been able to execute. And um, I, I, I'm with you. I think the trick is scale with intimacy. Like, how can we leverage these new capabilities? How can we think about new job descriptions, new goals, new metrics? T technology will not do it for us, but it can help us scale that 10-person uh, experience in Boston or engaging all of your volunteers. And if we can figure that out and really bring that intimate scale so that the alumni experience is less transactional for a greater uh, portion of the giving pyramid, I think the untapped potential is, is tremendous. Well, you're exactly right, Brett. I think, um, you know, just thinking about technology and thinking when I was in the small shop, not a little nonprofit, 20 years ago, everything, it was, you know, Dear Cindy Frederick, and it was handwritten notes. That's how we raised money. So I came here and it was, you know, we first started even our solicitations. It was, you know, dear fellow alum, I'm going to throw, I mean, that is not, that's a waste of, that's a waste of a stamp. That's a waste of a communication because it's not personal. So I think technology is not the answer, but now today, we are utilizing our technology and our data. So it's dear Cindy Frederick, thanks so much for your last gift of $50. I'm so glad that you participated in Madison House um, or you know whatever, because we have this knowledge and how do we make things as personal that we can that scale it to 200,000 people. Now technology, we can't do that. I used to be able to do that handwritten when I had a thousand donors. I could make sure we could do that and get all the board members. We'd have it personal. I can't do that for 250. So technology is really critical for us to be able to leverage that, to have that intimate relationship, even with fundraising so that people think, gosh, the university knows me. And that's where well, we have that information. We are, uh, aligned in our desire to support that uh, kind of experience. And really, it's been a privilege to be on this this journey with the University of Virginia. And uh, we've spent so many time, so much time there, my colleague, Maggie, I mean, we've, we've really uh, been on grounds, but, uh, but there's a lot of people to get to know. So we're still working at it. And we really appreciate uh, your support. And I guess my final question would be the people you've worked with along the way, either as colleagues or as peers at other institutions who really stand out, you know, are there certain 
characteristics when you think about the people that you, if you could assemble your dream team of advancement professionals, what are the characteristics or skills that you really would look for? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that desire and passion to change people's lives, that they really want to do that and will do whatever it takes. So um, for me, it's that drive um, to bring people together towards that common goal. So that's number one is drive and passion. I think number two is not to be afraid to try new things um, and um, to begin with that beginner's eye. I think sometimes we think we know it all as professionals in advancement. So I'm a really big believer in making sure we listen, that we ask questions, that we find out going back to your initial um, question um, of how do we know or your comment regarding alumni, what do they need? So I think I look for people who are inquisitive that um, know how to listen. My dream team is someone who doesn't have all the answers, but will find the solutions in a team environment. And so that passion is individual. You know, I want that drive, but I want someone to come in to say, this is a team sport. We are about building community and I don't know everything. The moment that I think I know everything, I mean, going back to, you know, we did not do virtual events. And if I would have just said virtual events are not going to happen, I would have had these blinders. So I think that continuous learning is something that I look for on that dream team that you want to learn, that um, you're excited about that. Um, and then the final one is, um, you know, I want people that are joyful in um, the impact that they're making. And so, um, you know, where do you find that joy? Um, and, and as a manager, how do I help find that for other people. And that's where we go back to, you know, how do we have a diverse workplace? How do we grow people in their careers? And I find how you can do that is find out, sometimes you get someone in and then you find their joy. And then it's up to me as a manager to say, how can we recreate a job? How could we uh, redefine? How could we open up our avenues of new work to be able to have that joy be fulfilled? Um, and if we can do that, we have a dream team that can produce 1,300 events in a year for 75,000 registrations. I love and it's it. A, well, and volunteers, right? Volunteers. So that's my dream. I know you, uh, the, the whole world, I think, at least right now, appears to be in a bit of a hiring freeze, uh, or at least the, the higher education world. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to encourage the listeners to bookmark the UVA jobs page and just keep an eye out when uh, when we get back to it. Yeah, well, people, you know, the good thing is, you know, we have openings, everyone, we have a, a team that stays. Once they get in, they stay, but we, we're growing. Um, the need is out there. And so I would love um, for anyone to come to work for the University of Virginia, but I would encourage people who are listeners, you know, how can you make a difference in the advancement profession? And um, it's been a great career. It's been a great, um, you know, a great career for me since I was, you know, you know, seven years old raising money for uh, the local crop walks. And uh, it's a great profession. So it's been a pleasure to chat with you and to have this Likewise, conversation. Likewise, Cindy. And I will say my, my family and I are going to be making our way back to Northeast Iowa this summer. And we are going to be doing a road trip. And we've been trying to plot destinations. And the Melton House from 1844 just went way up on the potential list of stops. So thank you uh, for your yeah. time, for sharing about your journey. And uh, 
we really look forward to seeing what happens as the One UVA mission continues to advance. Yeah, wahoo wah. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. Wahoo wah. Thank you.